From the studios of Teeing It Up in the swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for August 21st, 2017, Monday, 83 degrees, sunny skies. And we welcome in to Talk the World of Golf, our friend from the Golf News Net and Yahoo Devil Ball Golf Blog, Mr. Ryan Ballingy, joining us from the Jersey Turnpike. Hello, sir. Hey, Jeremy, I'm good. He's in my state. I get to proudly rep him. You were at President's Cup Media Day today, um, and I'll start here, which is if you have not gone onto Ryan's Twitter feed before reading this, please do, because they're having this press conference in the stands surrounding the first tee, and two dudes decided I'm going to play right now, and it's hilarious, and that must have in person been even more hilarious. And by the way, those two dudes were Daniel Berger and Jordan I thought I saw them put out context later, uh, 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 sorry, content later that it was Spieth, because that guy looked like Spieth. Was it easily recognizable? Like, did you guys say hi to him or something? No, I mean, he was probably about 50 yards away from him when I shot the video. And at first I wasn't thinking about, well, who is it? Because I had seen a couple of folks who were definitely not Daniel Berger and Jordan Spieth <laughs> teeing off while we were getting ready for this whole press conference thing, I figured, all right, well, maybe just a whole bunch of members are playing through. But it, you could pretty easily recognize Speed by the way he was standing. Yeah. And obviously the huge Under Armour hat. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that's Speed. But then the way that they downplayed it, the way Nick Price and, and Laura Neal from the PJ Tour, who were doing the press conference, that being downplayed it, like, oh, well, it must just be two guys. And I was like, but wait, it's not. And then later in the day, Probably about 10 holes into the round, they got onto a helicopter. They had a helicopter at Liberty National. They got into a helicopter and went, I guess, to wherever they're staying for the week for the for the Northern Trust. That's pretty funny. So they were not part of any media rollout, any press conference, any anything? They were just using this as a scouting trip for five weeks from now? Just there to scout, yeah. With uh, those two guys, Steve Shirker came out after the press conference, and Jim Jerk was there which I thought was a little surprising, but uh, Jim Jerk was there, and they were just practicing and messing around on a, a bunch of different holes at, at Liberty National, and um, that's, that's what they decided to do with their day. Yeah, that's uh, and, and Justin Thomas was out there yesterday with uh, Ricky Fowler, or maybe that was today. I'm getting all my Justin Thomas content confused because he played Shinnecock either Saturday or yesterday. Yeah, I think he played Shinnecock yesterday, and then... I'm not sure what he did today, obviously, but I didn't see him at Liberty National. Let me put it that way. All right, well, maybe... Oh, okay. He was in a city ad, and maybe that city... He was in some promotion with City um, on a golf course at the beach or, or, or near some kind of fescue in a skyline. I'll see if I can identify where Justin Thomas was today. That, might have, that may have been Bayonne. That was probably Bayonne, which is not too, too far from from where we were, about three miles down the shore. You may be right. So, uh, first of all, did you get to play Liberty National? We did. Uh, second time playing, I played it a year out. Last, I guess it was September. And uh, had a great time playing there. And then today, it was just an immaculate shape. I mean, it looks great. They've rerouted the golf course. Right. Difference than the way it, it plays naturally, so... The fifth hole is the first hole for the President's Cup. So you kind of play around five to four, and it ends on a par three. Uh, so they had to play that 
routing of it, which is you're just kind of adding holes on. But um, it's, it's a good setting. It's been pretty well set up, mostly done. Still some uh, scalp, you know, scabbing, uh, scalpel work or uh, uh, setup work for the hospitality type stuff to finish up. But by and large, it's pretty well in place. They're just kind of putting the finishing touches on it, and then they'll wrap it all and all the pretty stuff and make it look really good for. Now, you can help me out here if I'm forgetting my, my uh, Liberty National history. It opened to mixed reviews. Tom Kite went back in and did some changes. It got better reviews the last time it hosted the Barclays, now the Northern Trust. And um, what do you think now with that in mind of what you think it will play as a match play course? I think it's a good match play course. I think there are a number of holes that people are really, really, really going to like. Uh, there's, the, there's a hole that's 16 on the golf course, but it's 12 in match play, which I'm kind of surprised they chose that uh, kind of routing, but it, it's my favorite hole on the golf course. We played at 275, you know, drivable par four, water up the right, bunker on the left that's a pretty penal bunker. It's just a great match play hole. They're going to play from like 305 from a slightly different angle back into the right, but still should be a really good hole for match play. The first hole of the day is actually the toughest hole in the golf course, in my view. Um, it, it's a little awkward in that the way that they've routed it, in the first nine holes, you're going to play four par five, and you're not going to play any par five the rest of the way. So I'm, I'm not sure why they made that conscious choice, but if you get a match that goes to 16, 17, and 18, you're going to play 16 as a par 3, about a 180 shot for the pros. You're going to play a 360-yard par 4, which I think they should move up and play a 320, make it drivable. It's a blind tee shot. And then 18 is really about 175, 180-yard par 3 up the hill. So I think that's a little bit of an awkward way to finish, but the way that they set up the first 15 holes, they kind of make it so they don't want you to get to 16, 17, 18. Interesting. And is this because of crowd flow? Is this because of infrastructure? Any, from a logistics standpoint, it, it, do you think that's why the routing is what it is? I think two reasons. One, the driving range at Liberty National, it goes two ways, right? So you can hit the way they normally have it for members, you're hitting out toward what place is the 18th green. The way they're going to set it up for the matches, you're actually going to hit the opposite direction toward the New York skyline. So they want that to be the kind of cool deal for the players. And then the 18th hole, even though you really don't see it, will play into the New York skyline. So I think that's what the visual they're going for. Other than that, I can't really explain why they chose to do it this way. I just think ending on a, a match on a par three is kind of silly, but I guess they thought it was pretty good. We shall see how this all plays out. Um, the quote you gave from from Steve Stricker um, involving Phil Mickelson was interesting. Um, you know, I think a lot of us left Hazeltine thinking Patrick Reed is on every you know Cup team for the rest of of his playing career if he wants to. And I think Phil Mickelson, I think people thought that he would get two gifts. Two, maybe he's not, you know, supposed to be on these teams, but he's a veteran leader, let's put him on sort of deal. But he has played so poorly that 
if you leave it up to Phil, I think you could be putting yourself into a trap because I haven't seen anything that has led me to believe that he can be a competent player in the President's Cup. But what I'm curious about, Ryan, is if what Paula Creamer just did at the Solheim Cup may be very inter may, may uh, tweak their views because her Solheim Cup was sensational and her play this year coming in had been awful. Yeah, and that may be thinkable that when you tweeted that at me, Paula Creamer was great in the Solheim Cup that brought the best out in her and maybe it's possible it can still bring out a spark in, in Phil Mickelson. He clearly wants to play. I mean, from everything that he said and every indication that he's given, he wants to be a part of this. And he's been on every American team dating back to, what, 1993 or 94? I think it's 94, like yeah. So he's, he's been a part of the American side for 22 years. I mean, that's amazing. So I don't think Steve Stricker wants to be the guy that says to Phil, I'm going to be the guy that takes you out. You're going to be the guy that takes you out. If you don't want to play, or if you don't think you're playing well enough, you've been a mentor to a lot of these younger guys. A guy that's likely to take his place is probably going to be younger. Of course, it's going to be like Jason Duffner, but probably younger. And if you don't think you can keep up with them or make a contribution that they could, then you should take yourself out because you have spent all of this time with these guys and you would be denying them an opportunity to play on an American team in one of these competitions that might set them up to play in a Ryder Cup for years and years to come. You just don't know. So I think that's why Stricker gave the answer that he did. And I think he truly believes that. I think he, his default position is built on the team. Unless Bill says, I shouldn't be on the team. And then he will, Stricker will identify somebody else. So, Unless Mickelson plays the first two FedEx Cup playoff events very poorly, I don't see how he's not playing. I guess that's just kind of my interpretation of Phil. But I think Stricker is going to need a season to take Phil out. And I don't think he's going to get it. Interesting. We shall see how that plays out over the next month or so. We're talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up. Any indication of Tiger's going to be there? Stricker has maintained that he's been an active part of everything that's gone on, decision-making, all that type of stuff. As far as I can tell, I think he's going to be there. I, I think he's going to kind of make his public reemergence, at least in a golf tournament, at the President's Cup. That's kind of the sensation I get. Uh, there were no questions asked today of Steve Stricker about whether or not Tiger's going to show up, but I just kind of get the sense reading the tea leaves that this might be a place for him to start to try to reintegrate himself into golf, even if he's not playing competitively. And if you go back to the Ryder Cup last year, he gave one interview, and that was solely to Steve Burkowski and solely about the passing of Arnold Palmer. He did not say anything to the media at Hazeltine until the victory press conference when two questions were asked at him and he kind of didn't want to even answer those and just keep the focus on the team. So if they use that formula, he can basically go most of the week without having to say anything. And I, I think that's probably what he will choose to do. He, he, he's been good about keeping things when they're not about him, not about him. And 
he can show up, have people cheering for him, rooting for him, telling, you know, expressing support without him really having to say much of anything. And he doesn't really need the media to communicate his message. He's got one, he'll say it. And if he doesn't, then he won't. So he can come back at Liberty National, ride the cart around, rile up people, get cheers going, get some personal support, and then whenever he's ready to reemerge, competitively speaking, or in some other capacity, he can go do that. I, I think that's probably why he wants to be a part of this, and that he wanted to be a part of it anyway. I mean, he loves Stevie Stricker, he loves, loves partnering with him, loves this person, so there's no reason to believe that he wouldn't fulfill his commitment to being a part of Stricker's team. Talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up. Um, we haven't talked to you in a little while, so let's uh, go through some things. First of all, the PGA Championship ending with Justin Thomas winning. Your thoughts on how that all went? I think the last hour and a half turned out to redeem most of the lousy first three and a half days. You got that right. It was a great finish. and that I really wish that the PGA of America would have set up Quail Hollow all four days, or at least three of the four. Thank you. Like they did on Sunday. Yeah. It was It was hard. I mean, the winning score was still minus eight or whatever, but it was it was hard. But you could score. And they put whole locations in ridiculous places two or three days leading into the, leading into the championship round. And I, I just think that kind of killed off what Quail Hollow was supposed to be, which is gettable. But demanding. Yeah. It's not Oakmont. It's not Augusta National. It's, it just isn't one of those places. And the PGA of America almost seemed like they were setting it up like to be the U.S. Open that didn't happen this year, like the traditional U.S. Open that didn't happen this year. That's and the conspiracy then, theory. I just didn't like that. Yeah. What What was so weird is Kerry Haig usually, excuse me, sets up golf courses like Sunday. That's why people love them so much. That's why some people think the PGA Championship is the best major in terms of competitive finishes. And yeah. and it was so un-Kerry Haig-like. And it's like, turn off the darn sub-air system. What are you doing? And then Sunday happens, and voila, a golf tournament breaks out. We're five wide on the back nine, and Justin Thomas, the guy who you and I both have said will eventually win a major, goes out there and steals the damn thing. Yeah, and I. the interesting thing is maybe we don't have the same leaderboard with Thomas and Matsuyama and Kistner and Fowler and Francesco Molinari. And we don't have that same board were it not for the first three rounds being kind of tough. But I still think we probably would have gotten something pretty close to that. Yeah. It let the foot off the, the gas a little bit and just said, all right, well, we don't need to run the greens at 15. We don't need to put whole locations in place where everyone's just putting defensively and it's the only way you're going to make a bird here an eagle is if you put it pin high six feet away and I think that diminishes part of a major championship if you're only asking someone to stick it close and then putt it as opposed to being able to make mid-range putts playing away from pin uh, and doing the kind of stuff that other majors maybe demand of you in a different way but the result at the end was a good one I mean that Justin Thomas was going to win a major someday 
it just happened to be that Sunday, and that's a good thing for the sport. Ultimately, him winning a major championship at 24 and having yet another guy, American guy in his 20s, win the major championship, it's great for the PGA Tour. It's great for golf. It's going to take a while for it to all play out, but it's great to establish another guy who you can say has a major and could win another one. And if it had not been for Henrik Stenson waking up yesterday, uh, Molly Schneider-Jans would have won the Wyndham and would have gotten the Class of 2011 their ninth win of this PGA Tour season. It is absurd what that group of guys are doing. Yeah, they're a pretty special group. And yeah. You're right about, I mean, between Stenson and Schneider-Jans, but they close with 64 each or something like that at that field, so... Yeah. They played great golf yesterday. That was a really good battle. Another good golf tournament that really not many people were watching because there were other things going on and it's the end of the FedEx Cup regular season. But it was a good golf tournament. And again, Snyder Jams had been really reliable throughout the course of the season and making cuts. He didn't really struggle making cuts. It was just kind of putting it all together for four rounds. And on this golf course, really, he didn't really have a like, great experience that but he found something that he liked about Stenson Field and gave it a good run. Like he said, Stenson was just, just too good uh, one Sunday to finish it off. But uh, another great golf tournament. Like he said, the class of 2011 is going to be head deep of guys who can win twice a year or more or once a year with a twice in a major or five year, you know, five times a year with regular events. Yeah. All those guys can do it. And you're going to set yourselves up for, if you're the PGA Tour for 20 years of potentially really great back and forth between these guys. And there's, then you're going to fill in with guys like Brad Donkey and Doc Redden and Doug Gim. Yeah. Go down the line of Maverick McNeely. I mean, go down the line of great young college players that are winning. They're not ready to win. They have won lots of stuff. So they're not going to be afraid when they get to the PGA Tour. It's just going to make for a great youth movement. That's not just this year. not just the class of 2011. It's going to go on. Well, and look at yesterday, and I was going to get to the amateur in a second, but but look at yesterday for a second. Doc Redman, two down with two to play, holds a 60-footer on the back of 17 at Riviera, knowing he has to do it. He makes it, turns around, hits a baby fade in the 18 with a pin cut three on the right. You and I watch every single year how tough that green is. It was tough during the earlier rounds. He hits it to eight feet, and he sinks it. The level of play in that whole match, and then especially those last three holes, was absurd. It was so good. That was was one of the better U.S. amateur finals, at least in recent memory, I would say, going back, maybe as far back as Steve Scott and Tiger Woods. I mean, that one was probably the classic. But you don't really get a lot of good U.S. amateur finals. Just being a 36-hole marathon, someone just pulls away, you almost never get past the 33rd hole. And this was 37 fantastic holes of golf. Just what, a, what an ode to those two guys who played fantastic golf. And then just the amateur golf in general, that those were the two guys that survived a 64-man field that had 10 or 11 guys that are probably at least have the goods. They may not all do it, but have the goods to someday win on the PGA Tour. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Let's get back to the PGA for a second. Here's what I don't get about the setup. I, and, and, and you talk to the guys, so you would know this. 
Most players find the week-to-week PGA Tour setup fair. They may not prefer the direction the tour is going, but they find the setup fair, correct? Oh, yeah, they love it. I mean, they set it up, the greens are pretty soft and receptive, the fairways are firm and fast, and you feel like you're, you're popping in a Popeye spinach. That's great. They love it. Right. Quail Hollow has always been one of the tougher courses all year. The winning score is not that low. If they had set up the PGA like the Wells Fargo with the differences that May to, to August gives you, maybe you grow the rough up just a touch, nothing absurd, but just the natural differences between May and August, the weather dictates whether the, the greens are running fast or not. Don't you think that would have been fine? Yeah. Yeah. Totally, I mean, the PGA of America's championship, the winning score is supposed to be usually these days from 10 to 15 under par. Yeah. Every once in a while you get someone like a Tiger or Jason Day who throws up a high 10, maybe 20 under par. And that's it. Yeah. And that's what, that's what their identity is. But I guess they must have felt that maybe this was a, in part uh, Johnny Harris from well, Hollow thing is like, look, we put all this money into it. We want it to be hard. We want it to be the Augusta National of North Carolina. And by God, they're not going to shoot 16 under on our golf course. And I think that's a dynamic that it's hard to balance, that it's really hard to understand from an outside perspective what that tug and pull is like, uh, push and pull is like. But I assume that at some point, after the first three rounds were hard, everyone was like, this is big. Jerry probably went to Johnny and the folks that, well, Hollis is close. we got to open this up. We, we need birdies and eagles. We need cheers and fun to finish this thing off. And they are like, all right, sure. It's a dynamic that plays into it. And, I mean, I, I think back to the U.S. Open in 2011 at Congressional. They redid their green 18, 20 months out. And they thought that would help them with USGA this time and help them land another U.S. Open that's not to immediate future. And it didn't work out. The weather got them leading into it, and then it rained a ton, and they had lost the green. They could do nothing to them. Yep. They just had to take it. And Rory and Louie and the entire field obliterated that golf course. And I'm sure they wanted it to play where the winning score was like plus one. And it was 17 strokes worse than that. There's just nothing they could have done. But they put all that money into it with the hope of making it harder for the future. And the folks at Quail Hollow did the same thing, hoping to not be a regular PGA Tour stop in three or four years. They want to be a President's Cup host and a PGA Championship host. And that's the commitment they want to make. A huge event every five to seven or ten years, whatever they decide not a PGA Tour event every year. That's why they made these changes. I think they needed that uh, validation, I guess, that their golf course didn't need hard enough. But if you grow the rough and make it long enough, you can make any golf course really hard. Yeah. PGA to May, players to March. Fan? Yeah. I, I think if they do it right, yeah. Um, obviously, 2019 will be a little bit of a gamble, right? You just don't know what's going to happen with that page. Same thing's going to be true in 2022 at Trump's place. You just don't know how that's going to work out. 
in terms of weather. But May in the Northeast United States really is typically not that bad. It's pretty reliably okay. That should be fine. But I, so they're existing that you should be okay. I'm interested to see if they grab the bull by the horn and say, all right, we're taking this thing to Texas, Arizona, Florida, and Nevada. And we're going to bring a major championship to places that never could have had it in August and will never be considered by the USGA because they're just not that pedigree. And if they're willing to take chances to go to modern courses, places that epitomize really what Aaron Hills is, which is golf that's more fun for the everyman than the kind of this classic country club golf, which is just hit it to the 25-yard fairway. If they embrace that, I think, and they kind of wrap the whole messaging around this being the official kickoff to golf season for normal people, then they can set a programming around it, they can do teaching lessons, they can have all kinds of activation from a, a marketing and sponsorship standpoint that really helps them get the word out about PGA of America professionals, what they do, and what, how they can help your game, then I think it's a huge success. I think it's better than it was ever going to be in August. Because by the time you're through the PGA, through the Open Championship, I wasn't ready for the PGA Championship when it rolled up. Like, are we going to do this now? Like, we just had a great thing with Speed and Kuchar, and you got to tell me we have another one? And now with the case of golf season, you can have a great appetizer for majors with the players in March where the golf course is harder and they feel like with the agronomy improvement they've been able to make and just how better agronomy is in general than a decade ago, they can still make sawgrass hard. They're just going to get more interesting weather than hot. So that'll be good. You get the Masters in April, always great. And then you get May, a PGA Championship so you got guys who are hot in April like when a major in May, instead of, I think about Phil Mickelson, who throughout the course of his career was really only good April, June, yeah. in the major championship. Can you imagine, he might have won three PGAs if he were playing in May. He plays the first half of the calendar year great, and then just kind of went to the bed the rest of the way. I'm sure he's probably thinking that too. So I would be curious to see how players who typically come out of the gate hotter and then fade might like this more than guys who build up the strength in July and August and play out the calendar that way. Talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up. The Solheim Cup was impressive. I mean, look, I, I think all of us knew the U.S. was deeper, especially because of the problems with the ladies' European tour, because of the injuries, because Suzanne Pedersen having to withdraw, because Anna Norquist having mono, because of um, Charlie Hall having a wrist injury. But the top-down performance of that team was awesome to watch. They dominated from the get-go. And for those who were not aware of the young, exuberant flair of Danielle Kang, um, Michelle Wee's best friend kind of came out of the Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth-like shadow. I think Danielle Kang is going to be a superstar if her game can sustain it. Oh, yeah. I, I love watching, I've, I've loved watching Danielle Kang play golf for years. But winning the women's PGA championship, I mean, it was their first LPGA win with the major. So it kind of thrust her suddenly into a different category of player. But she was always that talented, and she was great at UCLA, and she was great as a, a U.S. amateur winner, uh, I think twice over, back to back. So I, I think it was a huge week for her. 
I think people are going to fall in love with her. Angel Yin, I have not really seen play a lot of golf. And one day she's going to be a dominant number one in the world. I mean, she, I don't know how many drives she hit over 320 yards. It's insane. But it was at least six of them. And probably closer to ten of them. And she just murders the golf ball. And she's not like, unlike her, she's major guard, not afraid to hit driver. She's not afraid of anything. And I've really got a kick out of watching her play golf. It was cool to watch Lexi come back from four down through four against Anna Norquist in one of the best matches you're ever going to see anywhere by anybody at any time. And as Annika kind of said, when the Euros were five down after day two, it was like, well, I don't I remember what the official number was, but I think she said, like, the U- we made 37 birdies in an eagle, and we lost the session three to one. Like, what do you want us to do? And they just got outplayed, and the U.S. was hot, and they won. And then now this is going to lead to calls, like it always does, for either a revitalization of the old Lexus Cup contest, Asia versus the world, or U.S. versus Asia, or North America versus Asia, so we can get Brooke Henderson, um, whatever that is. And I'm sure that they probably thought about that at the LPGA. Mike Wan's a really smart guy. But I just hope that the folks at the LEP somehow, however this works out with the partnership between the LPGA Tour and the European Tour to help them out with investment, sponsorship, and probably some financial support. Hopefully that buffers the LET in a way that doesn't suddenly just shove all of the good European Tour players, the ladies European Tour players, who split some time with the LET to all of a sudden just come over to the LPGA because the money's so much better and and all that stuff. So that's one aspect of it we're going to have to watch going into the, the cycle for 19 is do you pick the teams the same way if you're the European captain, whoever that turns out to be? Do you still have four wild cards, four from the LED and four from the Rolex ranking? Or how do you make that work? I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's my interest point moving forward for the Bullheim Cup because I don't care how good the teams are. I mean, it's not like the U.S. team is uh, set the world on fire in terms of individual performance in the LPGA this year. But the quality of golf was just stunningly good and probably better than what we'll, that we'll see a lot of the time in the President's Cup. It was on that level and it surpassed it another time. Well, to that point, and first of all, the golf fans from Iowa were sensational. I mean, those crowds were nuts, and I give them so much credit. But I went through this um, the other week on the show, the U.S. Um, international team disparity right now in the President's Cup is a laughing stock. It is not even close on paper. There's only yeah. one, one, basically two, if you count Louis Ustase and, and the streakiness of him. There is one, one international player, Hideki Matsuyama, who is hot right now. Everyone in the top ten of the U.S. team except for somebody who I forget offhand, uh, Dustin, is hot right now. There's just a ridiculous disparity, and I fear what's going to happen. Either you know, guys like Jason Day and Adam Scott have to wake up uh, and get their games righted quickly, or else this is going to be 
you know the the uh, President's Cups of 05 and 07 and and 09 and 11 and those types of cups, and not the great golf we saw two years ago. Yeah, it's very well possible. I mean, I, there was a rosy tone struck by Nick Price this morning at the news conference, and I think that they felt heartened by the changes that allowed us to kind of hide their weaker players in the President's Cup format as it is now. But even still, I mean, look at the guys on the American team. Like you said, the weakest guy that's qualifying right now is Dustin Johnson, yes. the number one player in the world. So I don't know how, if you're Nick Price, you got to be like, we got a chance. No, you don't. You're not going to win. But I guess that the goal here is if you can't win, make it respectable. Make it a three-point loss, not a five-point loss, or something along those lines. Because if they don't keep it respectable, then you entertain these questions like we're getting with the Solheim Cup of maybe we need a tougher opponent for the U.S. Well, we don't have a tougher opponent for the U.S. if you're the international team. They're, they're the Europeans. So that's all we got for, for the U.S. I, I would be interested to see what the reaction would be if there is a kind of blowout American win here. But that all said, the, the margin between being number, let's say, 15 in the world and 50 in the world is extremely small. Unfortunately, this time around, the American side has the bulk of their place in the top 15 in the world, and there's really nothing the internationals are going to be able to do about it. I think it, it will probably be a strong performance from the U.S. Uh, and to Ryan's point, and, and just for those of you who have not heard this, uh, the top 10 right now for the U.S. is Dustin Spieth, Justin Thomas, Berger, Ricky, Kisner, Kepka, Kucher, Reed, Hoffman. The top 10 right now for the internationals is Matsuyama, Day, Adam Scott, Louis Oosthuizen, Schwartzel, Leishman, Brandon Gray, Siwoo Kim, Johnny Vegas, Adam Hadwin. And the next two are Tanahara and uh, Grillo, followed by B.H. On and Hatong Lee and uh, Yuta Ikeda and Anurban Lahiri and Wong and Fratelli and Lee. The hottest guy on that list is Dylan Fratelli. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> this is just uh, it's, it's as lopsided a, a team lineup as I can ever remember. Yeah, it's bordering on unfair to be truthful. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really is. And it's just, that's how it works. It's the ebb and flow of golf. Um, It'll be entertaining to see how Johnny... Not to be pretty, but it's the way it works. Yeah, and, and Johnny's going to have some fun with this because Johnny will be up there in the booth and he may get disinterested. And disinterested Johnny Miller is always an interesting Johnny Miller. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he probably will whack philosophically about why we even have the President's Cup anymore and go from there. But Probably. That, maybe that's the discussion worth having. I mean, if the yeah. U.S. win this one and let's say they win at Royal Melbourne and they win at Quail Hollow in 21, they will have lost one since 1994. Why are we still doing this? And, and yeah, and it's, it's also... Um, the, the thing about that, too, is they're playing the, this President's Cup format uh, in terms of how the U.S. team is made, which is 
a bunch of bros, basically, under captains they love, this Ryder Cup, President's Cup, back and forth now where you're getting assistance and captains going back and forth. It's a laid-back atmosphere, but these guys actually like being with each other. This is not like they're being obliged to do something. These American guys actually want to be doing this and enjoy being with each other because they're best friends anyway. Um, right. It's it, it's a hard formula to break up. Unlike the '98 team, I, I I think it was '98 was the team that lost under Ken Venturi, right? I, that yeah. that team didn't want to be there. Jim Nance has talked about this uh, for years that that. Um, um, Kenny told him in the years since just how unmotivated those guys were. They got the Australia buy-in in 2011, I guess that was. 11, yeah, 11. they got the buy-in. They did what Freddie wanted them to do. They went down there and had a blast, and, and, and the rest is history. Uh, final thing, Ryan, uh, your FedEx Cup champion, because now we start the playoffs, um, for me, this comes down to pacing yourself. Jordan talked about it a couple of years ago when he, when he won the whole thing. Because of the reset, and Jeff Shackelford loves, loves to call this the reset cup, um, as long as you just kind of you know plod your way through the first couple and get in that top five or near it, you're in prime position um, for the Tour Championship, and then that's the event that you really pour your heart and soul into. Um, for me... I'm looking at some of these guys down the list, guys like Ali Schneider-Jans, guys like Harold Varner, who are now playing well and are playing with house money, who could win a bunch of these events. But in the end, I think this comes between Jordan and Justin, and I think we could have a best friends battle down the back nine at Eastlake. It seems like it's setting up that way. I hope that that's it. I would love to see, for once, the top five guys really in the tour championship. We usually do not get that. Right. Uh, because of the fact that... Y- y- yeah, because these guys just are, are not interested. Right. Uh, it, it, that would be a perfect world where we had Steve Metsuyama, Thomas, let's say Fowler and DJ, you know, that kind of group. Yeah. Grinding with a win and you get it all type scenario. Uh, I haven't seen Metsuyama play... He's played particularly well in the past. Obviously, Speed's done it. I think Justin Thomas can do it. Ricky Fowler's there, usually there. But um, I think that would be the ideal scenario is where we finally get a tour championship where math really does not matter. It's just, all right, these are the guys that could win it, and they can win the whole thing. And if we can do that, then I think it's going to be a really great playoff, a really great cap to a very good PJ Tour season. And here's the thing about that, Ryan, and and I'm, I, I am not sure when you last looked at the standings. This is one of the unique years where right now the top 10 in the FedEx Cup going into the playoffs is loaded. It's Matsuyama, Thomas, Spieth, Dustin, Ricky, Rom, Kepka, Berger, Kisner, Harmon. That's a loaded top 10. It's not every year we get, you know, big names essentially in that top 10 and with the way they've rejiggled the reset as long as these guys play halfway decent we're going to go to east lake with basically those big names at the top yeah and i hope it stays that way i mean the harvin could be a really cool spoiler i love watching him play uh but other than that those are guys who are either current or the future of golf and i you know you can kind of argue up with burger but uh in terms of whether he's current or the future but he's He's going to get there. So it, it should be probably one of the better FedEx Cup playoffs 
in memory uh, that we had. I mean, we've done this 11 times. Uh, this, you know, this is yeah. the 11th time. Yeah. I, I think this could potentially be the best one yet. Then, of course, you could have someone run the table and make this a laugher. You just never know. But And give credit to Tim. Yeah. And also, I give credit to Tim Fincham on this. Flipping the nines at Eastlake, I think, worked. It worked because of the hole out from Rory. It worked because of the way the playoff was with Ryan Moore's putting. But I think in the end, that will actually prove to be a good decision by Tim Fincham. I think so. Yeah, ending a golf course on a par three. We just talked about it with Liberty National. It's, it's weird. It's yeah. Just, it's weird. And you, you want to try to entice players to go for something, but... You're just hitting a you're just hitting an approach shot. It, even if it's a 230 yard approach shot, like Eastlake, but I would rather finish on a 600 yard par five where you really got to earn it to get three, and make that kind of the cap off to a season than a par three where you're just playing for par and making two is darn near impossible. So I think that they made the right call, and I I hope it all plays out the, the way that it should, the way that it deserves, the way that we've had all season. He's Ryan Boundy. He's from the Golf News Net and Yahoo's Devil Ball Golf Blog, and he's coming to us from the greatest turnpike in all the world. I just made that up. The Jersey Turnpike, coming off of President's Cup Media Day. Ryan, thanks as always for coming on Teeing It Up. Thanks, Jeremy. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you here next time.